I want to start today by acknowledging that we did not post a podcast last week. This was intentional, as rather than listening to me, I think we all need to start listening to the messages coming from the world around us. I talk a lot about listening in this podcast, but this is a whole other level. I know that it's easy to focus on the visible things in the news right now, and to even get angry or start to form opinions. As a reminder, take things in from various sources, be careful to avoid generalization. The things we're seeing happen in the streets, looting, riots, hostility and brutality amongst people, are not interchangeable with the protesters, just as not all police officers are murderers. Many people have reached a point of frustration, and what has happened recently are the visible symptoms of something deeper. If we want to really make a difference, then we need to get to the root of the issue, and that's much bigger than what happened in any of the recent events. It has taken decades upon decades of action and reaction to get to this point where people feel there is no other way to be heard. Now, I can't speak to what it feels like to be black or a person of color in our world today or over the past 100 years, but I can be respectful, I can be empathetic, and rather than argue based on my own experience, which admittedly has been devoid of the bias that many folks experience, I can listen. I can take the information in, and I can attempt to understand. I think we need to pay attention to both the obvious and the less obvious inputs. Consider things through other lenses, and then use this information to shape our actions. We must be willing to change, willing to get better. While individually we may not be able to directly impact the systemic challenges that exist out there working against people of color, we can certainly recognize that they exist and change the things that we can control particularly our own actions and behaviors. I know that you would never condone what happened to George Floyd and many others, but what have you walked past? What we tolerate becomes acceptable. I'm going to commit to ensuring that I don't walk past, that I raise my own awareness, and I don't tolerate poor behavior or bias, and that I challenge it in the right way. I'll keep self-evaluating and checking in on ways that I can not only improve personally as I'm far from perfect, but also in how I help others. We each need to be willing to use whatever voice that we have to ensure that changes occur that will drive improvement in our society. Henry Ford once said, If you always do what you have always done, you'll always get what you've always got. I ask you today, is what we have today good enough? I don't think so. Agility, the great equalizer. Now, as I said last time we talked, today we're going to focus in on agility and adaptability. They're important skills that set apart those that manage change well and can turn difficult times into great successes. They can level the playing field between large and small and allow those of us who excel at them a distinct advantage moving into the future. Agility is defined as the ability to move quickly and easily or the ability to think and understand quickly. Now you may consider agility and adaptability interchangeable, but I think there's a difference. Here's how I see it. While agility is about quick response, adaptability is about slower change. It may even be irreversible change. But let's start with agility. John Lynch, one of the best safeties of all time in the National Football League, once said of Barry Sanders, Trying to tackle him was something that could break your will. I was always the free hitter, which is a great thing. 
unless you're facing Barry Sanders, because you're responsible for tackling him. Sanders is one of the best running backs that ever played the game, known as the most elusive of all time. He was the Rookie of the Year when he joined the league in 1989, and over the course of his career, which most would say he cut too short, retiring in his prime, he was the rushing leader multiple times, the league MVP, and has now been inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. All of that was in no small part due to his agility. I had the pleasure of seeing him play in person, and he appeared to move laterally just as fast as he could run straight ahead, turning on a dime with little notice. He made defensive players like John Lynch miss regularly, and Lynch himself was spectacular. Embarrassingly, many a defensive player was left tackling air, as he wasn't there by the time they arrived. He was so agile that the Minnesota Vikings defensive line, the big guys on defense, would prepare to play against Barry by being asked by their coaching staff to catch chickens released onto the field. Nobody could unlock the key to his agility. How could someone change direction so quickly and adeptly? It all starts with planting a foot. For Barry, that plant foot would allow him to accelerate off in a different direction. Now we need something similar for ourselves. We've talked in the past a few times about setting a foundation, and keep repeating it because it's very important in dealing with change successfully and is equally important in becoming agile. Agility starts with stability. I don't mean that things need to be absolutely steady in order for you to become agile. What I mean is that you need to consider for yourself some things that remain constant or that you can hold firm as you change directions. This could be purpose. It could be identity. It could be the team that you're working with or your family. This is going to be different for each of us. But if you're going to become agile, like Barry Sanders, you need to first find a solid place to put your foot. Taking the time to put this in perspective for yourself will give you something to fall back on as things become more fluid during a directional change. While I can't promise that you'll make it to the NFL Hall of Fame, I can assure you that in this effort, you'll be able to wrap your hands around the things that you'll keep coming back to. You could use this as the world changes around you, like we talked about a few weeks ago, or as you shift into a new direction, as we're talking about today. When we observe a person or an organization that seems particularly agile, we can only see the outward signs of change. The piece that generally goes unrecognized is what happens upstream of this. Before we see the foot plant and the hard cut, there's a mental process that person or organization goes through. Those that demonstrate world-class agility and adaptation can only do so because they leverage great vision, foresight, and situational awareness, which allows them to be moving as most are just seeing a change coming. They balance their time considering near-term events or actions with taking a step back, raising their head up, considering the bigger picture and its implications. If we are to be truly agile and adaptive, we must develop a high level of situational awareness, coupled with great vision of both the short and the long game. We need to be abundantly aware of ourselves and what is happening around us. I'll do a whole episode on self-awareness, so I'm going to hold back for now beyond the statement that you really need to know yourself and be ruthless about understanding your own strengths and weaknesses if you're going to know how and when to adjust course. As for being aware of our surroundings, nature can teach us about the success that comes with a strong situational awareness and adjustments. The coyote has lived in North America for more than a million years. But since the early 19th century, when Lewis and Clark first encountered them, coyotes have been subject to a pitiless war of extermination by ranchers and government agencies alike. 
a U.S. government agency called the Bureau of Biological Survey, which became the federal solution to the so-called predator question, began focusing mostly on wolves, because that was the animal that the livestock industry wanted to eliminate. By the 20s, they had managed pretty much to extirpate wolves in North America, so they turned to the coyote as the arch-predator of our time. A lab was created called the Eradication Methods Laboratory. It began working on various kinds of poison to wipe coyotes off the face of the continent. And in 1931, they got Congress to pass a bill that gave them $10 million to do exactly that. What ensued was the most epic campaign of persecution against any animal in North American history. In a nine-year period between 1947 and 1956, this agency killed approximately 6.5 million coyotes in the American West using blanket poisoning, sometimes with as many as 3 to 4 million poison baits out at one time. The coyote evolved with an adaptive, evolutionary-derived strategy for surviving under persecution. Coyotes evolved alongside larger canids like wolves, which often persecuted and harassed them, killing their pups. As a result, coyotes developed this fission-fusion adaptation, which human beings also have. This enables them to be either functioning as a pack predator or as singles and pairs. When they're persecuted, they tend to abandon the pack strategy and scatter across the landscape in singles and pairs. And the poison campaign was one of the things that kept scattering them across North America. One of the other adaptations they have is that whenever their populations are pressured, their litter sizes go up. The normal size is five to six pups. When populations are suppressed, their litters get up as high as 12 to 16 pups. You can reduce the number of coyotes in a given area by up to 70%, but the next summer their population will be right back to the original number. They use their howls and yipping to create a kind of census of coyote populations. If their howls are not answered by other packs, it triggers an autogenic response that produces the large litters. Even today, some 500,000 coyotes are killed each year, many shot to death from planes and helicopters, yet the coyote has survived all attempts to eradicate it spreading from its original territory west of the Rockies to the East Coast, where it's now found a safe, new refuge in cities like Chicago and New York. The coyote shows us what is possible when you're dialed into what's happening around you. In areas where they're hunted to attempt extermination, they actually end up growing in numbers. For us, high levels of situational awareness will give us warnings when things are changing, and act like an early warning system so that you consider how you will change in order to prosper. You can act quickly, or over time, depending on the stimulus you're getting from the environment, as you consider long- and short-term scenarios. Bringing this back to today, we need to pay attention to trends inside our industry, but also those that are slightly removed from our work. Right now, we see things changing in how we interact and live our lives outside of work. Do we really think this won't impact or seep into our business? Or will we begin to take larger and larger steps technically as we advance? We need to be paying attention to what is real today, and better yet, looking for early warnings for what could happen next week, next month, next year, next decade. If we see it coming, we'll be able to plant a foot and shift in order to take advantage of the situation rather than being reactive to it. Getting our eyes up and all senses on full alert sets us up for success. Of course, there's a certain amount of uncertainty in acting on early information rather than fully developed and proven outcomes. I've worked in places that were late adopters allowing others to prove out technology. While this worked for them in their specific circumstances, it can be a fatal mistake in a fast, dramatically changing environment. 
As organizations or individuals make decisions in this changing environment, we need to be willing to take smart chances. We won't always be right, but we need to react to what we're feeling and seeing. Kodak is often stated as one of the ultimate examples of failing to adjust to a changing market. Interestingly, though, it wasn't as much a case of not seeing it coming, but failing to make the decision to change that put them in a bad place. The company had taken on a CEO that was highly innovative, regarded as being among the best CEOs in the world at the time. George Fisher, who headed Kodak from 93 to 99, had pushed through an initiative to pump $2 billion into research and development for digital technology. As the 21st century kicked off, Kodak pumped more and more money into digital research and tried to poach top talent from competitors. Ironically, a lot of the disruptive technologies they were confronting in the market had actually first been developed in-house, and then shelved. They kept trying, but it was simply too late. Kodak was attempting to catch up in every field that they tried to compete in, from image storage to inkjet printers, to digital cameras and medical imaging technology. In fact, a Kodak engineer in the 70s named Steve Sassoon actually created the prototype for the first digital camera way back in 1975. However, management failed to see its massive disruptive potential and make coherent long-term plans to capitalize on their innovation. Unfortunately for Kodak, they missed their window and were chasing the market rather than making it. This ultimately led to bankruptcy. They did emerge from bankruptcy, but in my opinion, they're not what they could have been if they'd avoided complacency by maintaining a stronger situational awareness and acting on the inputs that they were receiving. A few smart risks could have seen Kodak decades ahead of their competition. In contrast to Kodak, let's look at another company's journey in the same market. As Kodak dug itself into trouble, Japan's Fujifilm was reinventing itself and rising to meet the digital challenge in surprising ways. Founded in 1934, Fujifilm had an almost complete monopoly on film in Japan for several decades. Think 70 plus percent market share. Then in the 80s, digital imaging technology began to register as a credible threat to the company's traditional business. They weighed the possibilities, chose to try their best pivot and embrace change rather than fight against the tide. Fujifilm quickly released the world's first digital camera in 1988. It was revolutionary, storing images on a semiconductor memory card. But it was also prohibitively expensive, and personal computers hadn't yet advanced to the point of letting people do their own photo editing. So the cutting-edge camera didn't exactly sell like hotcakes. As a consequence of traditional photo films continued increasing profitability, management began to discredit the magnitude and speed of the digital threat. By the end of the 20th century, Fujifilm eclipsed Kodak as the market leader in film, and 2000 was the year that global demand for film products reached its all-time peak. But despite the milestones, the company's forecasting predicted turbulent times ahead, a contracting market for film, and the end of a long era of massive profitability. All at once in 2003, the digital tide finally hit hard. Two-thirds of the company's traditional business was wiped out. Remember vision and a willingness to act on it? Fujifilm was delayed in reacting to what it was seeing as a result of the profitability. So they ended up being a bit behind in the fight to survive here, just like Kodak, but they took a different tact. Fujifilm's new CEO, Shigetaka Komori, went into crisis mode. If they couldn't find their footing in the digital era fast, they were done. To avoid going under in short order, 
Komori oversaw the difficult decision to shutter most film manufacturing plants and downsize the company. With a bit of breathing room, he resolved to make the business profitable under a new, technology-driven direction. Some would argue that this would have been easier to act on before the crash of their traditional market, but you are where you are. He decided the company needed to capitalize on its scientific assets. Fujifilm had developed over 20,000 different chemical compounds over the years. These were now taken out of their original film photography research context and redeployed into other industries, namely pharmaceuticals, healthcare, and cosmetics. When this changeover began, it seemed like madness to some employees. After years working on film products, entire departments now found themselves devoted to beauty products and moisturizer creams. For example, Fujifilm launched Astalift, a line of anti-aging skincare products that promised to give you photogenic beauty. How fitting. All the products are based on anti-color fading technology originally applied to film conservation. Rather ingeniously, the company's lab team discovered these compounds also had a similar positive effect on the skin, helping prevent sagging and fading. Fujifilm's pharmaceutical division used the company's lab infrastructure to develop new drugs. The company conducted research on cancer, Alzheimer's, and a host of other diseases while also developing new viral vaccines and gene therapies. In the high-tech field, the company's wide arc of research and development has found unexpectedly diverse medical applications, from digital x-ray diagnostic systems to medical informatics. Healthcare and cosmetics now contribute a significant share of Fujifilm's annual income, while less than 1% of their profits in 2017 came from the traditional film photography business. However, Komori states they will never abandon this aspect of the business. Maintaining their footprint in the traditional business has allowed them to capitalize on niche regrowth, leveraging their instant cameras to the point that Fujifilm's film business is now beating out its digital business yet again. Is another pivot coming? Either way, their overall annual revenues are now over $20 billion. Not too shabby for a company that many had expected to die. Even if they were late in reacting to the stimulus, the willingness to pivot into new markets or sectors where they had skills allowed Fujifilm to thrive and demonstrate an agility that very few can replicate. This type of agility in a company of this scale is usually only drawn out during what would be seen as a crisis, given their organizational inertia. Realistically, though, a technological change big enough to constitute a crisis in the 90s is an everyday occurrence in today's technology environment. We all need to be able to learn from the success of the likes of Fujifilm and use those skills day to day, stepping it up to an even greater level when major change happens around us. Many of the decisions that we're discussing here are being made with incomplete information or under extreme time pressure. This will lead to missteps or failures along the way. I'm sure that Fujifilm didn't get every conversion right as they repurposed their chemical compounds for the cosmetics industry. Things won't be perfect, and this is the ideal time to use the tools we've talked about over the past few months around managing change and the skills that we're discussing today around being agile. On a small scale, assess the inputs, adjust the direction to improve, do it again and again as you need to in order to find that path to success. For longer-term adaptation, it will take some time to learn to trust what you're seeing or feeling and to take action. Sometimes it'll be a bit late, like in the Fujifilm story. Either way, you need to be willing to act with an eye on the long game. This will be stressful, and you won't get it perfect, 
So take action and then course correct as the information becomes more concrete. This type of adaptation has the ability to put you out in front of your peers, as it makes agility much easier. You will appear to be making quick moves when in fact you have been migrating in that direction all along. A great example of bringing this all together takes us back to the National Football League. This time I want to talk about a coach rather than a player. One of the most staggering things about the New England Patriots' two decades of domination in the NFL is that their success isn't built on a raft of superstars. That's not to say that they haven't had fine players, but more than anything, the six titles since 2001 have been about the team as a whole, and that's down to what I feel is the single most impactful person in the league, Bill Belichick. The head coach's ability to zig while others zag has kept New England ahead of every team in the league for years and has led to a mind-boggling period of sustained success that should be impossible in a league that's designed for parity through a salary cap and a draft system. Belichick's genius lies in his refusal to wed himself to one overriding philosophy. While his purpose remains the same, to win, they call him a shapeshifter, constantly evolving his team's style. And that flexibility has been on show since he took over as head coach. Belichick, who's an economics major, is constantly scanning the horizon, looking to find market inefficiencies to exploit. He has had great success with quirky schematic innovations, but for the most part, he takes tried and tested methods and adopts them. The brilliance is in the timing. Belichick reintroduced the 3-4 defense to the league back in the early 2000s. When it got too popular, thanks to Patriot success, he switched back to a 4-3 where he could unearth some cheap gems. He was also an early adopter of the up-tempo spread offense that's become commonplace today. He helped change the meaning of what a two-tight end team looked like, using tight ends in ways we've never before seen. Plotting tight ends were out. Pass-catching polar bears were in. Naturally, Belichick now ignores that tactic. What used to be the team's base strategy is now an afterthought. Belichick saw a new way to take advantage of opposing teams and morphed. As defenses across the league have evolved to counteract the spread offense, they were left vulnerable to run-heavy teams. So Belichick's Patriots poured resources into developing a sturdy offensive line to power that run game, again making macro adjustments ahead of the curve. On a more short-term basis, Belichick demonstrates his agility almost weekly, with a change in tactics halfway through the game as he adjusts to his opponent's approach to beating the Patriots. In doing so, he often changes the momentum and snatches victory from that unsuspecting opponent. In Super Bowl 51, they executed the largest comeback in Super Bowl history, recovering from a 25-point deficit to beat the Falcons. They had started the game with what they felt was a winning game plan, but they were being beaten. Soundly. As often happens, Belichick adjusted those things that were not working. His opponent believed victory was in hand and stayed the course. In the end, the Patriots went on to win in overtime, capturing yet another Super Bowl victory. He demonstrated yet again that not only is he hyper-aware of long-term changes in the league and shifting the philosophy to be a step ahead of the opponent, but he's able to assess a situation and make changes in real time to deliver victory. He makes it look easy, as he's developed a process that starts at the base. He's here to create wins. This stays constant. He's taking in information and adjusting seemingly ahead of the curve as he's embraced the idea that being fluid is his key to success. He demonstrates each year and really each week that the approach of assessing the environment around you, using firm footing, 
to shift and adjust towards your ultimate goal of success using failure as a learning opportunity, Patriots have not had a perfect season, by the way, can be done at even the most elite levels. Looking back at what we've covered today, we started in the same place as we did when we started on the path of the overarching topic of taking something that seems bad and making it great. We need to create a solid foundation, and in this case, a place to plant our foot to make that pivot or cut. What you use as your foothold could be based in identity, purpose, or even in team. Pick something that will remain steady as things shift around you. Knowing that you have good footing, increase your situational awareness by putting your energy into picking up on the signals coming from your market or environment. Practice these skills in your day-to-day by thinking about the second and third order effects of decisions being made in your world. The better you get at seeing a couple moves ahead, the more in tune you'll be to the inputs out there. Remember not to get too focused on the short term, but to have some balance in your efforts to consider both long and short-term environmental factors. The next step is taking those inputs and choosing your path forward. This means combining your firm footing with the changes you see happening to create a new or adjusted course of action. This could even be a confirmation of your current path. Be careful not to get complacent, feeling satisfied with the idea that this is how we do it, because this is how we've always done it. That can be the precursor to walking off of a cliff with a smile on your face. If you remain vigilant and open to inputs, you'll be able to shift into new trends and opportunities, or to reconfirm that you have it right, or close to right. Remember, since you've taken in new information, the process of evaluation, even if it reconfirms your direction, is very important. While ideally things work out perfectly with every move, the reality is you'll find some things that work, some that are difficult, and some that fail. It's okay if things are not always a success at first. Remember, don't quit. Go back through the cycle we talked of in managing through change, adjust the course, and feel comfortable as you do it. Even if you're making small decisions, improving your situation with each, you're winning. So keep at it. Practice with the small things that you deal with every day, and when you encounter bigger moves that you need to execute, they'll seem easy, especially now that you have this new skill that you can lean on. 